All right. Let's see. Did I mute this? I may have muted this. No, are we good? Are we good? Yeah, we're good. All right. Excellent. All right. It's one of my goals to thwart the sound crew anytime I can and make their lives difficult. Anyway. All right. Good to see everybody today. Hope you're doing well. Hope you had uh, a good week. We're in that interesting time of year when uh, it'll be 60 degrees and then it'll snow the next day. So that's fun. Um, I actually got to ride my bike to the office a couple times this week. So that was, a, that was a good blessing. And it's fun when you can both ride your bike to work and go skiing if you want. So those are good things about living in Colorado that I appreciate very much. Uh, we had a, uh, had a good week, a very interesting week. This was Vista Ridge Board Week, and I uh, had a chance to get out there and uh, meet with the board. Appreciate Marcia and everything she's doing for the school in preparation for the next year. A lot of big plans. Uh, we'll hear more on that as we go forward through the days. Um, and, uh, and, 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 yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things in the works. So we'll see how that all comes together in the end. Good to see Brother Japheth back today after his grand tour to Florida, and a number of you were there and a part of that, and the, the one project went very well down there, something we prayed for on that day, so wonderful to see you back. Uh, I uh, just, uh, in advance, warning in advance, we're going to be a little rigorous today because we're, we're tackling core Christian doctrine. So we're going to be in a lot of texts, we're going to look at a lot of places, but I think you'll be able to follow along without too much trouble. You may want to have the Bible in front of you handy if you want to look them up, but we'll also, thanks to Brigida's hard work getting about most of the Bible in on the screens this week, uh, you'll be able to see them up on the screen as well. But let's pray and jump in. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this day, for the opportunity this day gives us. I pray your spirit will be with us, open your word to us, that we will hear with both our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing today with the series we began a few weeks back. By the way, if you were able to be here last Sabbath when Dina spoke for us, what a powerful message that was and what an amazing job she did particularly right at the end when she brought it all around and connected it all together and, and took my breath away and I nearly cried sitting there in my seat, as I'm sure all of you did as well. That was a very powerful and timely word. And uh, if you missed it, you're going to want to go online and look that one up and watch it because that was very good. And we look forward to the next time she'll be here. We may have to wait until after the busy season, uh, which comes up not too long from now yeah so we'll wait till the shops not so busy and we'll bring her back in in the fall so all right so we're continuing on with the series we were doing before that on the vision and the statements of mission that the elders worked on last year that we voted as a working document at our business meeting at the end of the year uh, we've already spent two weeks on this talking about the vision statement quick review it reads like this Jesus Christ has called us to be a diverse community pursuing whole, healthy, faithful lives in Him, we invite you to connect with our community and pursue that life with us. So our first two weeks, we, we explored the vision and its implications. Uh, week one, we focused on that first sentence. The idea that the expectation is the kingdom of God will be diverse. And the reality of this diversity 
will be tricky for us to deal with sometimes. See, the upside of uniformity is we agree about everything. But that's kind of scary too, right? That's kind of the nature of, of movements and entities that go into the world and do horrible things because there's nobody to say, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. But the reality of diversity is we're not always going to think the same way, and that's going to be tricky sometimes, but we have to do the hard work to make it work, even if that means sometimes you get things the way you want them, and sometimes you don't get things the way you want them. Now that can be very hard for us, particularly when we have deep values or primary values attached to outcomes we want to see. And when it goes another way, our values are offended, or at least our primary values are offended. And it's easy to forget that other people are also making decisions based on values they hold. And so often we get caught in this and we get into cycles of negativity within the church that is a natural outcome of the reality of diversity. But remember, if everyone in the church looks alike acts alike and thinks alike, that's a cult, not a church. All right, that's the difference. So then the second week, we talked about the invitation side. The gospel is a story we are commanded by Jesus to tell to all the world. Now, yes, all the world in this room, but also even more, all the world that starts once you go outside the doors of this room. Because there's really more world out there than there is in here. And the command is go to all the world. We aren't just to tell the story, but we are ourselves to also become a part of the story. We are to live the gospel. That was a, that was a phrase we used at Forest Lake Church that was, that was uh, an aspirational goal that we wouldn't just know the gospel, that it would actually permeate our lives and, and our lives themselves would be a living out of the implications of the gospel. And then we invite others to become a part of this story with us. That's what we mean in that part of the vision statement that says, connect with our community and pursue that life with us. We want people to join us in the story. Now, we have work to do in this area, but it is a work so worth doing because of the community that has developed in this place and is developing even now more and more is very special. And many people would be blessed to be a part of this. What you experience, the love you experience, the fellowship you experience, the engagement you experience in this place other people would be blessed to experience that as well. And we have to keep that in mind, that, that sharing the message of Jesus is not a burden we bear, it's an opportunity that we have to invite people in. Now there is an interesting outcome to this. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, this is John writing, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, now look at this verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
It's easy to forget sometimes that one of the primary motivations for evangelism ought to be the way it makes the church happy and joyful. Our joy is made complete when more and more people come to the Savior. It makes for a joyous environment. You know, some of the, the, the churches that get really ugly and insular, they don't know the joy of new life. But we've seen the joy of new life multiple times in this church, even recently with, with uh, new children being born or adopted into our community. And that gives us all such joy to see. Well, it's the same way. It's true also when others come to be a part of the family of God. We are all here because someone somewhere shared the story of Jesus with us. And beyond that, a special message for our time called Adventism with either us or an ancestor. So let me tell you, the legend in my longest Adventist line of family faith, which goes back five generations from me, is that the first ones to believe came to believe and heard the message from a man by the name of A.T. Jones. And if you know, you know. And I guess that explains why my dad's and my version of the faith is a little crazy. Because we go back to that guy who was a little crazy. But then crazy's always been a part of us. And when I think of evangelism at the Boulder Adventist Church, I can't help but think of Peter and Patty sitting right here in the front who came to a living and enduring faith in this very room. That's evangelism. That's what makes our joy complete. Now, many more of you may have as well. I don't know everybody's story. And many more could and would, or maybe better, many can and will when we figure out the best way to invite them to connect with our community and pursue this life with us. So today, that was the vision. Today we start on the statements of mission. And I'm going to run through them again, all six of them. We're only going to focus on one today. But we'll run through them. So here they are. Uh, number one, provide a welcoming and inclusive environment for all to experience and connect with God through the Holy Spirit. Number two, proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all as revealed in the Bible. Number three, reflect God's love in all our relationships and interactions. Number four, express our love for God through passionate worship, enduring faith, constant hope, and continuous renewal. Number five, promote a healthy lifestyle that nourishes the body, heart, mind, and spiritual aspects of our being. And number six, apply our God-given gifts in the service of others for the betterment of our communities. Now, now I'm actually going to take a little liberty today, and uh, we're going to talk about statement number two as listed first, for homiletical reasons. For it, it makes more sense to this series to start there. It's, it's possible we're going to meet with the elders, and like we said, we voted this as a working document, and as we work through it, we're going to look at how it's written and, and how we might change this or that. We may actually change the order there. It, it actually doesn't matter a huge amount because the list of one to six is not priority. They're, they're all basically, we probably could have 
just made bullet points would have probably been better than numbers. Maybe we'll do that going forward. But, uh, but in, the, in the reflection on it, we'll talk about this as the elders when we get together this week. By the way, elders meeting this week, in case you forgot that, uh, on Tuesday. When we get together, we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll want to move that order around. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, this is what we're focusing on, and it will carry the number two because that's how it is officially in the document. But number two, proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all as revealed in the Bible. This statement ties very closely to the second statement of the vision. The idea of inviting others to join us in the pursuit of our lives that God is calling us to live. Now, I don't know if you noticed this as I read through the statements of mission, but they all begin with a verb, and they are all written as imperatives. You remember imperative sentences from back when you studied those kinds of things? They started with a verb, and they implied this is what we needed to do or wanted to do or would see done. That is how we've written these, because we believe all of these are important. Some are more aspirational than others, but these are things we want to do, and in fact we must do, and that the elders would see done in this community. So, so as we reflect on this first statement, understand that it is the deepest purpose of the Christian church to proclaim Jesus. There is no purpose we have deeper than the need to proclaim Jesus. That's how we got the name Christian in the first place. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. One of the things you've got to understand is we have a tendency to get caught in our boxes of expectation. And the early believers were caught in the box of expectation that Christianity was nothing more than an extension of Judaism. And so they went and only primarily talked to people who were already Jews. But look what's happened. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now what's interesting about this is very rarely does the innovation in evangelism come out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem's caught in history. But the believers from Cyprus and Cyrene were like, well, why can't we just tell this to anybody? You see how we get caught sometimes. It would have been really hard for me not to be a Jerusalem-minded person. I get caught in ways of thinking. But they said, well, I mean, what could it hurt? And so they started telling Greeks. And all of a sudden, the Greeks are like, yeah, I'm into this. And it says, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now you read that, and it's like, oh, how nice. Well, not sure it was so nice. I think they were a little bit like, what are they doing up there? We need to send somebody up there and straighten those guys out. They're talking to Gentiles. And so they sent Barnabas, and it says, verse 23, when he came 
and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So they trusted him. They sent him up there. He saw what was going on. He said, this is good. And he encouraged them. And a great many people were added. And that's, that's the hope for outcome we have here in our vision statement, that the invitation would result in a great many people being added. Verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And now catch this last line. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Before that they were called the way. But in Antioch they came to be called Christians. And who were the Christians? They were the ones who were willing to tell anybody about Jesus. Christians are the ones who believe in Jesus and proclaim him to anyone who will listen. And that is who we are and what we will do as God gives us occasion and opportunity. But what do we mean when we say it is our mission to proclaim Jesus? And from what source do we derive the knowledge that is behind the proclamation we make? So the rest of this statement of mission seeks to answer those questions. And it is to those questions we now turn. First, what are we proclaiming about Jesus? Well, to put it in a language used frequently in this place over the past several years, what we are saying by that is this. Jesus all. You ever heard that one before? I feel like you have. That's what we're saying. And you can see that in the title today. Jesus is there for it all. Creation, redemption, second coming. Jesus is there. A fact I'll break down for each of these concepts in a moment. But first let me say this. Jesus is at the, is at the center of it all. This idea of Jesus being at the center of all is not a new idea to Adventism, but instead is the most Adventist way we can be. Though we forget this sometimes. There was a saying Ellen White used to say that has come down to us, and the statement went like this. We want the truth as it is in Jesus. If there was no connection between what we believed in Jesus, we didn't need it. We wanted to under, understand everything in the context of Jesus. He was to be at the center of all of our theology. Now there is a text that sits deep in the psyche of Adventism, one you've likely heard many times. Uh, Patty read it for us earlier. I'll read it again now. Now likely you know this text in the King James Version, so we got a little twist on you here by reading it in the English Standard. But Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now if you have had any amount, any significant amount of Adventist education, 
and you were paying attention at all in your classes, not taking that for granted, but if you were, you will know this as the first angel's message. One of three messages from three angels who deliver a message to the world in the closing days of Earth's history. Now perhaps, if you're thinking ahead of me here, you've made a connection for yourself already, but in the event you haven't, the statement of mission we are focusing on today is nothing more or less than the first angel's message. That's exactly what it is. Proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all as revealed in the Bible. There's three key elements here, and I would suggest to you these are the three key elements of the Christian faith. The three things that have to be true in order for any of this to matter. If these three things aren't true, none of this matters. And for the sake of explaining what I mean, I will change these from the chronological order that we listed them to one that I think will help us understand better. We're going to start with this. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Redeemer. We will start there. Two testimonies from Scripture flesh out what this statement means. One made by Peter and one made by John the Baptist. First Peter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, that's Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, now catch these words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These are the key words. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To me, this is the first and most important confession any believer must make if they are to join in the story of the gospel. But here's an important point we must never forget when proclaiming the story of Jesus. While this is a statement with evidence behind it, there is evidence behind it, it is also a supernatural statement that cannot be proven by human means, even in the time of Jesus himself when he was walking on the earth. Because how can you prove a man that looks like me or you is literally God's son? Is there a test for that? Not a reliable one. At least not in our sense of how you would test that. And it is interesting to note how Peter came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. It would be tempting for us to think Peter came to that conclusion because he was with Jesus all the time and he could see, obviously, this is the Son of God. But according to Jesus, that's not how Peter did it. Look at this next verse. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see it, right? 
The only way to know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is for the Father himself, the Father in heaven, to reveal it to you. It took a miracle for Peter to believe this. And it still does. It still takes a miracle. I can tell you Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I can give you evidence to support that position. But the Father has to confirm it in you for you to believe. If he has, you know what I'm talking about. If he hasn't, you have not yet truly become a Christian. For conviction on this reality is the foundation of the church. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This text has been misunderstood sometimes. Assuming that the church is somehow built on Peter the man. But it's not built upon Peter the man. It's built upon Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the foundation of the Christian church. And this is what it's built on, sustained upon, and the basis from which the church can assail the gates of hell. We stand on the confession, revealed to us as true by the Father. You have truly become a Christian on the day you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But there's also another confession about Jesus that is relevant to our statement of Jesus as Redeemer, one that's made by John the Baptist. And we find this in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, now here's the key words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. This is a very interesting point. John did not say, oh, I know that guy. And there was a reason for this. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, the Father, he who sent John to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. How did John the Baptist know who Jesus was? The Father told him. That's how he knew. Same way you know. Same way you know. Same way you believe. The only way we can believe is for the Father to convict our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Revealed to John by the Father. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we proclaim when we say Jesus is Redeemer. 
This is the gospel. And this is where we link back to what the first angel has to say. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is what Jesus said. Go therefore into all the earth and teach the gospel. The angel is there proclaiming to those who dwell on the earth. The angel is proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus is Redeemer. And the message must go to everyone. All who are willing to believe are called to come to Jesus. This is why the church, if it is faithful, will be diverse with one thing in common. We all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What do we have in common? That's the one thing for sure. Can't promise anything else. But that's the one thing for sure. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What unites us at our core is deeper than all the other things that would divide us. We agree that Jesus is our Redeemer. But we said three things about Jesus. Creator, Redeemer, and Sovereign. And we introduce our next consideration with the first angel's message again. This time, verse 7. Revelation 14, verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, this is the angel, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Now we aren't going to get into the weeds today on this verse, though someday we will. For today, I want to show that God has made Jesus sovereign and tasked him with bringing an end to sin and suffering. Jesus is sovereign and his task is to bring an end to sin and suffering. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign. That's what a sovereign does. He reigns. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is a description of the final end of all sin and suffering. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, verse 27, God has put all things, how many things? All things in subjugation under his feet. Jesus is the sovereign over all things and will put them fully right when he comes again. Hebrews 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere, and if you're curious, that somewhere is Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. The author of Hebrews goes very specific with this particular psalm, saying this is talking about Jesus. Now in putting everything in subjugation to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjugation to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, so that we're not confused here, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he presumably referencing the Father here, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, our salvation, perfect through suffering. Well, we certainly know that Jesus suffered, don't we? And through this process, makes us perfect and a part of God's purpose. Philippians 2, verse 5 have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself <clears throat> by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so now look what happened. Therefore... God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is sovereign over all, and we are to all profess him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Redeemer. And it is by rightful judgment that Jesus, our Sovereign, will in fact put all things in order for eternity. Here are Jesus' words. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He, the Son of Man, will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he, Jesus, will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is the sovereign, and his hour of judgment will come. John 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, I don't know what I might have done right now to your view of the judgment. But I hope I have at least made the point well enough that Jesus is sovereign and all judgment passes through him. And so we have connected two parts of our statement of, me, of mission. Jesus as Redeemer, 
Jesus as sovereign, with this message of the first angel. But let me also add another point here. This truth of Jesus as sovereign, as supernatural, as eternal judge, and that he will come again in his glory, is another unprovable reality we must receive by faith at least until the day it actually happens. There are no means by which I can prove to you it's going to happen until it does. You got to receive it on faith. You got to believe it. And so that makes two things now, right? That we must receive by faith that Jesus is Redeemer, He is the Son of God, that He is the Christ, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are all concepts way bigger than we can prove. You got to receive it by faith. And that Jesus will come again to set all things right. We must receive it by faith. But let's go on. And on the face of it, this one might seem harder to accept, but let's try anyway. Proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all as revealed in the Bible. We did redeemer, we did sovereign, but what about creator? Isn't God creator? Well, yeah, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, yes. But what do you mean by God? And this is actually a very lively issue in certain mostly conservative circles of Adventism where the debate rages as to whether we say the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or the one God are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please, don't go down this rabbit hole of foolishness. None of us will ever, even after the second coming, none of us will ever fully comprehend God. But what we can do is learn about Him in the manner He has chosen to reveal Himself. Now, by the way, even using male pronouns for reference to anyone except Jesus. Okay, we can be pretty sure Jesus was he. But it's presumptive to apply it beyond that because it says he created humans in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So he, his image is male and he just made something else up? I don't think so. So it's presumptive even in that context. But fine. I don't have a big point to make there. The Bible does that. We're fine. We'll go with that. But let's not get ourselves into this trap that we know exactly what God is. We know what's been revealed. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So we see how the everlasting gospel is related to Jesus as Redeemer, and the hour of judgment is related to Jesus as Sovereign. Now we turn to the third part, of the first angel's message, worship the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
Is that Jesus too? Well, we read a text already that, that touched on this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who is he? Well, in this particular passage, seemingly that he is not Jesus, since this is the one who makes the founder of their salvation, presumably Jesus, perfect through suffering. So we definitely know Jesus suffered. So, so if we were to read this, we might be inclined on our minds to say, well, this implies that the Father is creator, by whom and for whom everything was made. <clears throat> but we might be laying a trap for ourselves here, because we also have this passage. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now catch this verse. For by him all things were created. Talking about Jesus here. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, how many things? All things were created through him and for him. That's kind of curious to put those two, two verses together, which use the exact same language but seem to imply something different. The simple answer to it, we're in over our heads here. We're in over our heads. Trying to drag the reality of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, into a context that makes sense to us in our three-dimensional, time-bound reality that we can understand. This is a losing game. Since we can never know if we got it right or not. So let's not play it. Suffice it to say, Jesus was fully involved in creation. And thus we can say, the Father is creator. Jesus is creator. The Spirit is creator. Because God is creator. And at the end of the day, it doesn't have to make sense to us. Because really, do you understand everything about how creation was accomplished? No? Then stop worrying about which specific role Jesus played. We don't even know how they did it. Or how he did it. Or whatever pronoun you want to use there. Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. And all of this is easy enough to connect back to the first angel's message. Revelation 14, verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. For you see, all three elements in our statement of the mission and in the first angel's message, they're all there. For us to proclaim Jesus as these things is to be involved in the message of the first angel. And that is exactly what Adventists have believed God is calling us to do. And for all the bolder haters out there, just look how orthodox we are. 
first angel's message. It's written in our mission. Now I'll make a comment at the end about the critical implication uh, of both our statement of mission and the first angel. But first, a quick comment on what lies at the end of the statement. Proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all these words. As revealed in the Bible. We believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God through which we, by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, the very same Holy Spirit that inspired the writers, that we, by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, this Bible that he helps us read, from it we gain the understandings necessary for salvation and successful Christian living. We take a high view of Scripture, but we are not inerrantists. Though sometimes we get lazy and behave that way. We believe God inspired the writers and blessed the words they wrote, not that God dictated the words. It's an important distinction. And it's one we need to hang on to in this day where many would have us either say God dictated the words or say, nah, guys, just made them up. We're threading a needle here, but we have to do it because both of the other opinions are traps. We also believe that it is our job to know the scriptures, and there's only one way to do that, right? You read them. You got that, right? We believe it is our job to know the Scriptures and faithfully interpret and apply them not just to the days of the Apostles or to the 1890s or to the 1950s, but in fact our current responsibility is to apply the words of Scripture to the year 2024. Good news is we only have to do that for about 10 more months. Then we'll have to apply it to 2025. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But... Stay out of the weeds of foolishness. Titus 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Don't get caught in the weeds. Stick with the core. All right, so, so let's try to bring this all back together. And, and so I'm going to invite the band to come back up because we're almost done here. Let's try to bring this all back together. The statement reads this way. Proclaim Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sovereign over all as revealed in the Bible. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, the message of Jesus as redeemer, to proclaim to all who dwell on the earth 
to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. The sovereign is setting things right. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Creation, redemption, second coming. These are the three things that must be true or else everything we're doing here is ridiculous. First of all, redemption. If Jesus hasn't saved us, then as Paul quotes, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus hasn't saved us, who cares? But it is by faith we receive this as true. Creation. If in the beginning God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then what right does he have to come into the world and make laws? He, in that case, is nothing more than a usurping tyrant and an alien invader. And what in the world was Jesus doing if they didn't create the world? How do his actions save us if God didn't create the world? We can't be neutral on this point because the whole thing is ridiculous if he didn't. But it is by faith we receive this as true. Second coming. All of that, redemption, creation, it's all just interesting and academic. If, in fact, Jesus does not intend to finish the job and set things right again. But it's by faith we receive this as true. As Jesus said to Thomas, not our Thomas, but to the Thomas back then, the one that doubted, do not disbelieve, but believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe that Jesus is creator, redeemer, and sovereign of all. This is what we proclaim.